Welcome to Shelter Cove. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you find encouragement through today's message. For more information, check us out online at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text at 209-340-3115. Hey, welcome everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. While you're turning to Proverbs 3, let me take this moment to introduce myself. My name's Chad. I have the privilege of being one of the teaching pastors here at Shelter Cove. Uh, If you are newer, you're checking out our church uh, either digitally or you've been hanging out in person with us for a little bit, I just want to say welcome. We are glad to have you here. We genuinely pray that our church would one day be a place that you can call home. So for the next three weeks, what we're going to be doing is kicking off a new, se- uh, new series called The Journey. And in this series, what we're going to be doing is, is inviting you. We're going to be inviting people to trust God in deeper, more profound ways with their finances. Now, before things get like awkward and a little bit uncomfortable, I'm well aware that when it comes to the topic of money, uh, it, is, it is a difficult issue to handle in the church. Uh, because historically, the church has handled this issue less than perfect, less than what we would probably hope for. It seems like churches do one of two errors when it comes to money and possessions. Uh, they either overemphasize this issue. Uh, it's like every other weekend you're getting berated over the head uh, to give, and, and it seems like the pastor's laying some guilt trips on the people all the while. It seems like their wardrobe keeps getting nicer, the cars they're driving keep getting nicer. seems like there's some ulterior motives at play. Uh, we want to make sure we steer clear of that mistake. Uh, on the other side of the coin, You can make just as grievous of a mistake by not addressing this issue because you're too afraid to upset people. Uh, Like, here's the the deal. If you open the Word of God, you're going to bump into the topic of money and possessions all over the place. Like, the word faith in the Scriptures is used roughly 500 times. Money and possessions used more than 2,000 times in the Scriptures. Uh, You cannot open the Bible and not run into this issue. So for us as a church to avoid this because we're afraid of upsetting you is just as big of a mistake. Why does the scripture spend so much time speaking about money, you ask? Is God some like money-hungry deity? Of course not. God does not need money printed on paper that came from trees that he spoke into existence. You follow me on that? Our dollar bills do not supplement or bolster the sovereignty of God. He will be sovereign whether or not we give. What the Lord is after is our hearts. Jesus said it perfectly. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he meant by that is, show me how a person spends their money and I will tell you what they worship. I'll tell you what they find their security in. I'll tell you what the affection of their heart is drawn towards. Money is this huge window into the soul, into what our souls really worship. This is why the Bible deals with this issue so often. So let me try to just diffuse some of the tension before we get going here. Uh, I've got a couple of things I just want to say before we get going. As a church here, I've I've always been proud how we've handled money. Uh, Every year near the end of the calendar year, what we do as a church is we present a budget to all of you. Uh, we literally stand up here on this platform and go, 
for the next year, here's how we plan on spending our money. Uh, we have laid this out before the Lord, laid this out before the pastors, the board of directors, and we want to lay it out before you now. And we have you vote on how we're going to be spending money because we've wanted to be transparent and honest with you in how the resources are stewarded here at Shelter Cove. And I've, I've always just loved that. So I want you to know that, that we're going to do the best we can to, to never surprise you with how money is being used at Shelter Cove. Uh, secondly, I just want you to know that this sermon series is coming at a time and place where we as a church are very financially healthy. This sermon series is not birthed out of uh, desperation. It's not birthed out of frantic sphere because we're not going to be able to pay the rent. Uh, we have the luxury right now to just be able to lay the word of God, the wisdom of God's word out, and, and let him speak in however way he needs to speak to you. Uh, this is not a play for us to try and grab money from you. And finally, I just want to let you know, we're, we're not going to try and do anything shady today. We're not going to like pass the offering plates 50 times uh, until you give money. We're not going to mean mug you on your way out if you don't give. Uh, we're just going to let God's word bear its weight and, and let him do what he does best. All right. So with, with that kind of stuff laid out here, hopefully that diffuses a little bit of the, the nervousness around this topic. Let's jump into our passage here, Proverbs chapter 3. So the book of Proverbs written by King Solomon for the most part. He writes the majority of the Proverbs. Uh, this is a book all about wisdom, wise living. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's, it's both very simple and very profound. This is a book all, of, uh, all about principles, not necessarily promises. And here, pro, uh, the book of Proverbs is going to speak directly into this issue of money. So here's what Proverbs 3 says. We'll pick it up in verse Nine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Let me pray and ask the Lord for help. God, we love you and just pray for your help now. Meet us in this time. Uh, Spirit of God, through your word, would you speak clearly to, uh, to our people here? Speak clearly to my friends, God. Uh, help them, God, to see and understand in ways that are new, uh, in ways that compel and, and motivate life change, God. We need you for that. Help me to handle your word well now. And I pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen. So a series on the journey, I have to ask the question, what, what is the first step in this journey? How do we even begin this journey of trusting God more with our finances? Uh, here's what the Proverbs are going to say about the first step. Put God first in your finances. Put him first in your finances. What the text says here is honor the Lord with your wealth. This is coming in the context of Solomon saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust him with all your heart, with all your mind. Do not lean on your own understanding. Uh, I love what verse 7 says. Verse 7 says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Like, don't think that you are smarter than everybody else. That's what a fool does. The truly wise man knows his limitations and properly fears God, knows how much smarter, knows how much wiser God is. And so in that context, Solomon's then going to say, here's a practical example of how you trust the Lord, how you acknowledge him in all your ways. Honor him with your wealth. 
take your wealth and honor God with it. What he says here is the first fruits of your produce. So in ancient Israel, a primarily agrarian society, the driving force of their economy was agriculture. So what he's saying is take the first part of the harvest, the first and the best part of what you harvest, and when you come to Jerusalem, they would come to the temple a couple of times a year to worship, and with that they would bring their offering. That offering is going to be used to support the priesthood, and it will also be used as a sacrifice to God. That's what he's saying. Do this. Wise people do this. And then he has this really interesting little qualifier here in verse 10. Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. Once again, the the book of Proverbs, they're principles, not promises. So he's saying, generally speaking here, when people honor the Lord with their wealth, God takes good care of them. David says in the Psalms, I've, I've never seen the righteous hungry. I've never seen them lacking bread. So Solomon says, the Lord will provide for you. He will take good care of you. He will bless you. I can't stand up here and tell you the exact specific ways that he's going to bless you. Uh, I'm not going to try and make you false promises. Like if you give, he's going to reciprocate a certain dollar amount. I don't know how the blessing will look, but he does say here, I will take care of you. Now, this isn't a terribly difficult concept to grasp. Like, it's pretty straightforward. Honor him with your money, and he'll take care of you. My five-year-old could get, could get this. He could understand this. Here's the question I want to ask. Why is this so hard for us to actually put into practice? Why is it so hard for us to put God first in our finances? Because if church statistics are correct, 80% of you, Eight out of ten people are going to hear this sermon. You may even agree with the content that I'm talking about. You may agree in your mind, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds wise, that sounds like something I should be doing, but you will not practice it. You will not actually walk in this. That to me seems like the more important question. What's going on underneath the surface that keeps us from actually doing this? How on earth could we agree with something in our minds but not actually do it? So I want to pose another question for you. Why is it so hard for us to put God first? You ready? Our true nature gets in the way. What do I mean by our true nature? I'm about to read to you a verse in the Bible. This verse in the Bible flies in the face of almost everything our culture is teaching us today. This could be one of the most offensive texts in all of the Bible. Uh, It will scrape against our modern sensibilities. And yet, in this passage, there is so much explanatory power about the true condition of man. Like, this passage is going to explain why we are the way that we are in such beautiful terms even though it's a tough pill to swallow. So let me show you what I'm talking about here. Romans chapter 3, we'll put it up on the screen below us here so you can track. Romans 3 reads like this. We'll pick it up in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Nobody seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This text has just laid out the anthropology of mankind. This text has just said that you and I, we are cursed to the core of our being with sin. We are infected to the deepest parts of our body and mind and soul with sin. This is why we are inclined, we're bent towards sin. This is why it is so hard for us to obey God. This is why we can know the right things to do, but yet there's an inner compulsion in us to do what is wrong. How often have you known something that is right to do and yet felt drawn to disobedience? Uh, I have historically used this example. This text here is why your beautiful, sweet, innocent little child, you'll never have to teach them how to steal. You'll never have to teach them how to lie. You'll never have to teach them how to fight, how to be selfish, how to be narcissistic. They instinctively know how to do that because there's no one who is righteous. We are cursed to the core of our being with sin. We're infected with it. It it inclines us to disobedience. We're bent towards it. Now let me show you how our enemy pours fuel onto this fire. Let me show you how our nature gets exacerbated by our enemy. Uh, The scriptures describe our enemy as Satan in the Hebrew. We call it Satan. In the Greek, it is Diablos. That's the word devil. Uh, It it is is referred to as the adversary. He is referred to as our, our accuser. He's so maniacal in how he does this. He is the one to tempt this sinful nature of ours, this bent we have towards uh, sin and rebellion. He tempts us. He dangles the temptation in front of us. And then when we bite, he's the first one to accuse. He starts to heap shame and condemnation. He starts to heap guilt upon us. Have you ever heard these lies? Have you ever heard the whispers of our enemy? You failure. God couldn't possibly love someone like you. You did that sin again? Didn't you promise to God you were never going to do that again? Didn't you swear that this was the last time? God could never love somebody like you. Those people at church, if they knew who you really are, they would never accept you. You heard this? He heaps the shame. He heaps the guilt. And you know what that does to us? We either agree with it We go, you're right. I am such a screw-up. You're right, I am unworthy. You're right, there's no possible way God could love me. There's no possible way other people could love me. And the guilt, that shame, it's, it's suffocating. It's crushing. So we try to medicate it away with all kinds of false idols. We turn to drugs. We turn to alcohol, sex, achievement, money, toys, possessions. We look to anything and everything that would numb and medicate this guilt we feel. 
and none of it works. All of it just perpetuates our sin and perpetuates our guilt. Or, when we hear the condemnation and we hear the whispers of our enemy, we sear our conscience. And instead of being ashamed of the things we should be ashamed of, we start to take pride in our sin. We boast about our wrongdoing. We boast about our debauchery. We boast about our sexual deviance. We take pride in our anger and our hatefulness. We take pride in our disbelief and our rebellion against God. Our conscience becomes calloused, incapable of feeling anything, and we double down on our sin, taking pride in the very thing that we should be ashamed of. Both of these drive us further and further away from God, and they drive us further and further into disobedience. How on earth do we fix this? How do we solve this? I would be a terrible pastor if I stood up here and presented this problem without telling you the remedy. So let me show you the remedy. Titus chapter 3. I want to read to you this passage. If you have your Bible, turn with me. Titus 3. We'll pick it up here in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So that right there, there's our sinful nature, right? You are enslaved to your passions. Uh, the enemy was heaping shame upon you. It just caused you to go deeper and deeper into your sin. We hated others. They hated us. We passed our days in nothing but malice and jealousy. Four. Verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We already crossed that. We already crossed that bridge, right? We are inclined to sin. Our natural nature is to be bent towards sin and rebellion. He saved us. We did not earn this. We did not merit this. He saved us, not by works done in, uh, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hold on to those words, renewal and regeneration. We're going to come back to that. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So let me just unpack real quick what this text said. We were in our sin. We were buried in our sin up a creek with no way to fix it. And Jesus came to rescue. And here's how he rescued. He came and saved us by paying our penalty. He fulfilled the legal demand that stood against us for our sin. The legal demand of God's law, there must be blood for sin. And Jesus paid it paid it in full. And I love that Titus used the word here, justified. It's a legal term. The, the word picture here is that a judge is banging the gavel and is, de is declaring a defendant not guilty. So this text is saying, Jesus, by his grace, which is perfect, and in accordance with his mercy, which is perfect, bangs the gavel 
and with all authority on heaven and on earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, no, no, appeal, no court of appeals beyond Him, no authority beyond Him, He sovereignly says, Chad Blackman, because your faith is in Me, you are innocent. Not because you actually lived innocently, but because I have paid your penalty. I have satisfied the legal demand on your behalf. I was vicariously punished for you. And it's because of that you are innocent. And not only that, I have transferred my righteousness to you. You are now draped, you are covered, you are enveloped in my perfect righteousness. And I love this man because it is a flying knee to the face of the accusations Satan throws against us. When he does condemn and he does heap guilt and shame on us, we have a counterpunch here. We're able to say, you're right. I am a sinner. What a wicked, wretched man I am. You're right. How awesome is Jesus that he saved me. How awesome is my Savior that he fully paid my penalty and he has fully covered me with his righteousness. But the deal gets even sweeter. See, a lot of you don't know this. The gospel is a two-for-one deal. It's a package deal. It's not just forgiveness. It's forgiveness and, remember those two words? Renewal and regeneration. Because what comes with forgiveness is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. The text says here the washing of regeneration and renewal. What does that mean? It means God himself will now live in the heart and mind of the believer. And this bent that we had towards sin and iniquity he starts to straighten that back out so that our affections, our desires are set on holiness, no longer sin. Let me say it differently. He starts to create new desires within you. He creates new cravings. Righteous desires. Righteous cravings. Now I'm going to be straight with you. Our sinful nature does not go quietly. Galatians 5 clearly explains that the flesh and the spirit, our sinful nature and the spirit, they are going to war with each other. It's not a, a cute little pillow fight. It's a war. But the scriptures also promise he is going to regenerate our cravings, regenerate our desires. This is how our true nature gets fixed. We don't fix it ourselves. Our true nature is fixed by our condemnation being buried in the body of Christ and the Spirit of God given to the believer to create new, holy cravings within us. I can't remember where I heard this, but uh, one pastor said something to this effect. The secret to sustained Christian obedience is not trying harder. It's leaning more on the Spirit to renew and regenerate our desires. That's the secret. So when it comes to money, and we find it hard to obey in this area, there's more at play here than just a behavior. Our true nature has to be fixed. Now that's the, the that's the theological. Our theological understanding has to influence our practical understanding. So let me take a moment to just practically share with you what does it mean, like in real life, to put God first in our finances. What does this mean? First and foremost here, giving to God must come first in the budget. 
A lot of you don't even know what that word budget means. That's like the real B word for you. Budget. It means you create line items and you figure out how much money is coming in, how much is going out, and here's the secret to building wealth. You spend less than what you bring in. And when we create this budget, the first priority, before rent, before food, before our Netflix account, before whatever bills we have, God first. God first. I'm going to give a portion of my profits to the Lord. Comes first. Secondly, it's regular. It is regular. Uh, this is not something we do sporadically. This is not something we do whenever we feel like it on a whim. This is a regular action. For me and my wife, for our own lives, uh, what we've done is set up our giving uh, through the online portal we have here at Shelter Cove. So 10%, Rachel and I give 10% here to Shelter Cove. Uh, that happens on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Uh, I get paid uh, every two weeks at my other job, and, and so that's kind of how we've decided to give here. Uh, we have three other ministries that we support. Uh, there's two mission organizations and then a, a church in Texas that uh, has just blessed me and, and has really been instrumental in my walk with the Lord. And so we, we really believe in those ministries. We think those ministries are awesome. We want to support not only what the Lord's doing here local, but what he's doing abroad. And so we give to them as well. We give to those once a month. Um, I'm going to share with you in a little bit why, why giving regularly is important. Uh, but I just want you to know right now that, that this is something that needs to be done regularly. Uh, thirdly here, the, the amount is not as important as the heart. It's just not as important as, as the heart. Uh, there's a verse here in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 9. It's verse 7. Paul says this, uh, everyone should decide in his own heart what to give before the Lord. Not under compulsion, uh, for the Lord loves a, a cheerful giver. In the Bible, what you're going to see is the word tithe used a lot. Tithe means 10%. Uh, I would say that that's a good place to start, uh, but it is not like a, a legal, like demanding place. Like you have to do this. I think it's a great place to start. Um, but what the Lord is more concerned with is, is what's happening in your heart. Because here's the deal. You could give 10% and your heart could be very far from the Lord. On the flip side, you could give a small amount, but it would be very sacrificial and very trusting of you. And I think the Lord would be very pleased with that. So for you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like taking some time to pray, taking some time to seek the Lord. What, God, what would you have me give? The amount's not nearly as important as what's going on in the heart. And then finally here, I want to share with you a, a real practical benefit of, of giving. It produces blessing. It produces contentment. And it produces protection from sin. We already talked about in the Proverbs how this does protect us, or uh, rather it brings blessing. I want to show you now how it protects us. This comes right out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll throw it up here on the screen and, and you can follow along here. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What a fantastic verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That uh, standard has just been challenging me. Because for me, I oftentimes go, yeah, food and clothing, plus 
a nice house, a nice backyard, a nice pool, a nice truck, a nice boat, right? I start getting all these other things in. If I have all that, then I'll be content. No, Paul just says, food and clothing, the Lord's been good enough to us. Anything on top of that is just grace upon grace. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Watch this, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves, pierced themselves with many pangs. Because they loved money. They have brought upon themselves all kinds of sin, all kinds of ruin, all kinds of destruction. This picture, they're literally stabbing themselves with all kinds of pain. So the reason why giving regularly and giving to the Lord first is important is because it's like a built-in like check system. It's like a built-in safety system. It protects our hearts from loving God or from loving money more than God. It like, it, it like protects us from starting to worship money above and beyond God. This regular habit of saying, God, I am going to honor you with my finances. I'm going to leverage my money for the kingdom of God, not I'm going to leverage God to try and make money. You follow me on that? It saves us from temptation. It saves us from sin. And there's a real blessing that comes from that. I hope that in some maybe new way you're able to approach this topic of money with clearer minds, clearer eyes. I'm well aware of all the, the drama and the malpractice that has happened in the church history around money. Uh, we don't want to be one of those churches. We want to handle this wisely and biblically. And I hope you see today that the issue of money is far greater than just some kind of behavior. Uh, there are heart and soul, there are salvation issues going on at stake here. And so I want to ask you a few questions before we close. Number one, has your true nature been addressed? If your true nature has not been addressed at the cross of Christ and by the indwelling power of the Spirit, then at best, all this is going to turn into is short-lived action with no heart change that pleases the Lord. Has your true nature been addressed? If not, today's the day. Come to Jesus. Come to the Spirit and allow them to change you. And for those of you that do know the Lord, you would say, yes, I have encountered that grace, but I am not walking in obedience in my finances. Then I want to ask you the question today. What's stopping you? What's stopping you from trusting God? Where are you going to start? Let's start somewhere. The amount is inconsequential. What matters is, is a step of obedience. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. Thank you, God, for the unbelievable grace and forgiveness you've purchased for us. Thank you, God, that you, you free us from the condemnation of our enemy. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you renew and regenerate. We pray for more of that. 
Create hearts in us, God, that crave righteousness. Compel us to obedience. Compel us, Lord, to walk in deeper levels of faithfulness with you. Uh, and, And help us, God, now to be wise and steward our money in ways that please you. Uh, there are people in here today, Lord, people listening to this online who are, are going to be they're going to be feeling and sensing your direct your direct touch on them, your, your direct call on them right now to go deeper in this area. Make it clear to them what you would want them to do. Uh, compel them, Lord, to obedience, and I pray God that in their obedience they would find you to be so sweet and and gracious that they would see your hand of faithfulness, they would see your blessing, they would see how good you are to your own children and to your own family. We love you. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.